Let us pray. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Does anyone here like to be judged? Or should I say, does anyone here like to be judged unfairly? I don't think any of us like to be judged to begin with, but we especially don't like to be judged unfairly. Without all the evidence, without somebody actually listening, considering, and getting to know us. Who among us likes to be judged? And yet, we judge people all the time. We just can't help it. And sometimes we can help it, but we do it anyways. We judge people on the basis of how they dress or what they sound like or a piece of information about something they said or did. We judge people without knowing them, and we judge many people that we know very well. But the worst of all the judging is the judging we do against ourselves. In a report released in February, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported that nearly 6 in 10 teenage girls feel persistently sad and hopeless. In the last 10 years, this number has gone up by 60%. That 6 out of 10 teenage girls feel persistently sad, and in 2021, 1 out of 3 girls reported considering killing themselves. Now, if you have a pen handy, I'm going to give you this phone number, and you can write it down in your bulletin. Or you can remember to go to this website. But the National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Or you can text HOME to 741-741. Or you can go to speakingofsuicide.com and find more resources there. So when we bring up a subject like this, we know everyone's listening. And one particular part of this study, it tied these numbers to the increase in the use of social media. Instagram and other social media chat rooms that are leading young girls to feel sad, hopeless, and basically not like themselves. Or if they do begin to like themselves, it's for all the wrong reasons and it eventually fades away. What's happening is that we are promoting a voice that is speaking to our inner conscience. All these voices around us speaking to us in terms of who we are, whether we are worth something, And how can we judge if we're good, if we're right, if we're worthy? Our conscience is always the inner judge, and it's your inner voice that is putting you on trial. 
trying to make a judgment. And if what we're feeding ourselves are the voices of the world constantly feeding us on the basis of outward appearances, what people look like, what body we are supposed to have, what feelings we're supposed to feel, how popular we're supposed to be, then it's leading us to a false mistrial. It's a mistrial that we should cast out of the courtroom of God immediately and go to the one who really is going to have the answers. And so Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, Jesus was used to being judged. In fact, Jesus came to this world to be judged. He knew that his entry into our world was going to require judgment. It was going to be a judgment from the world, but it was also going to be a judgment from his father. And the Gospel of John, if you are reading it all the way through this season, pay attention to how many of the words testimony come up. Witness, testimony, truth. It's all over the place. And Jesus is talking about it here in terms of judgment with righteous judgment. The questions being asked in our text here, and actually it's 50-some verses long, which we shortened up for our reading today, is a confusion of public opinion. Who is Jesus? Why is he here? Is he worth something to us? You have a clash of opinion that begins with Jesus' own brothers. Then it moves into the crowds that are asking these questions. And finally, to the religious leaders who are starting to give answers. And the times we live in today, questions about Jesus are really no different. Our families have questions. The mass media has opinions. And church leaders have differing judgments on who Jesus is as I read once, the p- title of a book cover said, Will the real Jesus please stand up? And went on to list all the different profiles of Jesus that we have in American Christianity. So today I'm going to look at three questions that mostly Jesus does answer, but people don't get the answer. Where did he come from? What did he do? And where is he going? These are the three questions that the crowds are asking. Where did he come from? What did he do? And where is he going? The scene begins with the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast that's celebrated one time a year where the Jewish people from all around up into Galilee and beyond would travel to Jerusalem. And they would camp out there reenacting the events of the wilderness. It comes at the end of the harvest season, so they're bringing some kind of fruit of their offering to the Lord, to the temple, and they're camping out around Jerusalem on the countryside, and they're making their offerings and worship for seven days. As this feast is approaching, Jesus is hiding. He knows that the leaders in Jerusalem and Judea are seeking to kill him. Now, you have to make some critical discernments on who these people are. You have Jesus' own brothers who are up in Galilee. Then you have the crowds, which are called the Jews. 
And it's a particular group of Jews. Now, this doesn't mean that all Jews as a race are being spoken of, as we would talk about Jews today. But John is highlighting a a group of Jews which represent this crowd of people who have opinions this way and opinions that way. And he is trying to get the reader, who would include a Jewish audience, to think, where am I at in this crowd? And we should think the same thing. And then finally, you have the Jewish leaders who are a particularly focused group of people who are trying to arrest Jesus, silence him, and ultimately put him to death. The brothers of Jesus would be relatives through his mother Mary, stepbrothers, cousins. Where did Jesus come from? Well, they don't even know. They begin by saying, listen, Jesus, we know that you are claiming to be something. We know that you are getting popular. And he says, you should just go up to the feast and make yourself known to all the world. Show them who you truly are. There's a hint of sarcasm, of course, in what they're saying, because they really don't believe in him. Jesus' own brothers do not believe that he is the Messiah and Savior. And so they're taunting him. But instead of going with his brothers and with his families, which is what normally you would expect, Jesus stays behind. He hides himself. He goes privately. And he says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus has his own timing. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. So he won't go up to the feast with them because he says the timing is wrong. There's a theme throughout John of this mysterious origin of Jesus and timing of Jesus. This mysterious question, where did he come from? What is his time? What is his hour that is coming? And the brothers are blind to all this. His own family does not see it. So if anybody in your family does not see who Jesus is, don't be surprised because it happened to Jesus. The crowds who are at the feast also are having the same trouble. And this continues on in verse 25. Finally, Jesus does go to the feast. He goes in private and secret. And when people start to find out that he's there, they say, isn't this the one that they're seeking to kill? Why are they not seizing him? But they say, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This question, where did Jesus come from, has created a division. People are looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, the man, comes from Nazareth, where his father is, and Galilee, where he's living. We know where he comes from, they say, because they know his earthly parents and know his origins as a human, and they're looking to nothing beyond that. They're expecting that the Messiah would be someone who has a human origin. How often do we judge by appearance? by where someone's from. 
how their speech is different than ours, how they dress, what their education is. Jesus creates a division, and people are all looking at outward appearances. But he is revealing that only those who see what lies unseen will truly know. He says to them, you know me, and you know where I am from, but I have not come on my own. The one who sent me is true, but him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus is showing them that they might know his earthly origins, his human background, but they don't know the one who sent him. And it takes a discernment beyond what we can see with our eyes to really see what God is doing, how he's doing something so far beyond the ordinary of human circumstance in Jesus' life. He has come from above. But he keeps hiding himself from these people. He's hiding himself from his brothers. It's, it kind of almost makes me chuckle when they say, you should come up to the feast with us. And he says, no, 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 you go. I'm not going to go. And then seemingly five minutes later in the next paragraph, he goes. But he's doing it his own way. He's doing it on his own time. And he's not going to get caught up in public opinion. He's hiding because they want to kill him. And the reason they want to kill him is because of a work he performed on the Sabbath. Back in chapter 5, several, several weeks ago, we talked about a man who was healed. And in chapter 5, Jesus comes to Jerusalem where all these crowds, peoples, these important figures are, and he heals a man, a man who was paralyzed for most of his life. And then he tells the man to take up his mat and go home. Now, when the religious leaders see this man carrying his mat on the Sabbath, they recognize that he's violating the Sabbath because the regulations of the Sabbath law to rest and to worship, not to be moving your home, which for a homeless person that all he has is a mat, that's what he's moving from place to place. You're not supposed to be moving your belongings. So Jesus appears now in the temple teaching and they begin to marvel because he's teaching in such depth. But he's never gone along with the schools of all these scholars, these religious figures and leaders. He didn't go to their rabbinical schools. So where does he get this power and works and teaching? He's showing them that what he's doing is so much more than what they're seeing. They're only looking at the outward it reminds us that before we judge a person based on how well they can recite the catechism or based on what they're saying and how they're saying it, maybe they're saying something different than the way that I would say it when they talk about Jesus or they talk about worship. Maybe they can't understand and tell you what transubstantiation means, which I wonder how many of the people out here could tell us the catechism says about transubstantiation. And we use a word like that when we're talking about differences in teaching on the Lord's Supper and the person doesn't have any clue what we're, we're talking about. 
The question is not just what are we saying, but what are we listening to? In verse 21, Jesus says, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but it was through Abraham and reported by Moses. And don't you circumcise a man to keep the law even on the Sabbath. Now, if you're willing to do that, to keep the law on the Sabbath, are you angry with me because I would do something greater? I would make a man who is sick and helpless well again. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus wants his listeners to think deeper. What's the point of our faith? What's the point of our worship? What's the point of following Jesus? Is it about knowing all the rules and keeping them perfectly? It reminds me of what happened recently in Asbury University. We talked about this in Bible class a little while ago. That at Asbury University in Kentucky, there was a worship service that never ended. And following the initial service, some of the students gathered and they started praying and they continued worshiping. And if some of you heard the news reports, the worship service lasted for two weeks. And people were hearing about it and coming from all around the country to stand in line and participate in this worship service. Some people called it a revival. Some people called it a renewal. Some people said, I just don't know what to call it. Now, I'm not here to try to judge the meaning of that, the significance, or of any individual that was there. But just because it sounds different, or just because there are some things that might be said that we would disagree with, or even if we should see people breaking God's law. Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment. I heard the testimony of several people who were spiritually sick, some physically sick, and being healed. There was one girl who had come who was going to the university there. She had been to many chapel services, and she said she resented God because her mother had died unexpectedly when she was younger. And since that death, she had resented God. She said she would go to school, and she would even go to chapel, but most of the time in the chapel she would spend just looking at her phone, not even paying attention to what they were talking about. But she said this day when she went to the Asbury worship, it was different. She said people were speaking and sharing their confession with the crowd. And she got up to the microphone for whatever reason. She says, I don't know, but I felt I needed to get up. And she went up and she said, I've resented God for most of my life. And she explained to the people why and what had happened. She said when she left the microphone... She thought that the people would hate her. She was walking down the aisle. She said she expected them to tell her to get out of there for what she had done. But do you know what she received instead? She received hugs. She received prayers. She received comfort. 
And she said, now, she doesn't think of God that way anymore. That there was a new love in her heart that began that day. What is Jesus doing? And does he ever do things in ways that we don't expect or even in ways that we would do differently? If you are angry because the law of Moses was broken, then you are missing the point of why Jesus came. He came to make us well. And one of the key questions for all those students at Asbury University who took part in whatever was happening is where are they going to go from there? If indeed the Spirit moves and reaches someone in that college and university that didn't believe before or renews someone faith or makes someone well who is spiritually sick, Where does it go from there? I think that's the question we would all ask. And that's the question Jesus wants his disciples thinking about right here. He says to the Pharisees and the crowd, verse 33, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am going, you cannot come? So the question, where did he come from? The question, what is he doing? And then the third question is, where is he going with all of this? Where is he going with this ministry from above, and where is he going with this ministry of healing, and where is he going that they cannot come? Jesus wants us to think about this. It keeps coming up throughout John's gospel that he has come from the Father, and then that he is going to the Father. So chapter 16 in the upper room, he tells his disciples, it's finally the point where Jesus says, I need to get blunt and plain with these people because they're not getting it. He says, I've spoken to you in figures of speech. How many times have we read the Bible and heard Jesus speak in riddles? The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to my Father. And finally, they say, yes, you are speaking plainly at last. Jesus is headed back to the Father. And in doing so, he wants his disciples to know there's trouble coming. Because the same trouble that sent Jesus to the cross and his death, which led to his return to the Father, is the trouble that's going to come on the disciples and the church. 
The world will hate you, he says. They will scorn you. You will be scattered. You will experience trials and tribulations. But this is the point of his coming. Jesus came to confront evil. He came to bear witness about what is true and to confront the world with the evil that it's doing. And he does this by the cross. He does this by suffering. He does this by accepting silently the death that his father has planned. The Pharisees can't understand. The crowds can't understand. They're confused about where he's from. But the reason is they're not hungry yet. They're not thirsty yet. On the last day of the feast, the great day, seven-day feast, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, let him come to me and drink. For the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How thirsty are you? We see plenty of thirsty people, which is one of the reasons I believe an event like Asbury sparked. The question is, will they find what they're thirsting for? Will they find a lasting well to revive them two weeks from now or two years from now when the world brings more and more trials on them? Or 20 years from now when they're dealing with a loved one who has cancer? Will they find what they're thirsting for? Will they find what they're thirsting for when they're on social media and finding messages that only teach them to hate the own body that they were born into. Or messages that say they're not pretty enough. Or messages that say that they are pretty enough and that's what matters. If anyone who believes in me thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I believe this passage is talking about Jesus first. That Jesus is the wellspring from which all waters will flow. And then it makes a comment, which is John inserting a message for you. This Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John is anticipating this time that we are living in, where the Spirit is poured out. But the Spirit isn't poured out in the world. The Spirit isn't poured out on social media. The Spirit isn't poured out because you feel it or you want it enough. The Spirit is poured out from Jesus' heart, from his insights, from his compassion for us, from his love and sacrifice on the cross, is poured out into our lives so that we can drink and be filled and say, I am enough, just the way Christ has redeemed me. I'm worth enough to Jesus 
that he would give up everything he possibly could to suffer, to redeem me, and to make me his own forever. Why should I ever judge my own looks, my own appearance, even my own past, if Jesus has washed it all away and said, you are mine? For out of his insights will flow rivers of living water, which are the Spirit, poured out for you to receive today, continually poured out, drawing us back to the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 55, which says, Come to me, you who thirst, you who have no money, buy bread and eat. We might find that six out of ten girls in their teenage years are experiencing sadness or hopelessness. What can we do to direct them to a man that can truly judge them righteously? To a judge who won't look at outward appearance, who won't make his judgments based on their behavior or based on how good they are or bad they are. All of us need the same judgment, the judgment of righteousness, which convicts us all of sin, the judgment of righteousness, which shows us that the Father sent his Son to be judged for us, the judgment of righteousness, which declares your inner judge, your conscience, to be free from guilt and blame. Amen.